Hey, this is Mike Hollis, former kicker for the Jacksonville Jaguars, Buffalo Bills, and New York Giants, and you're listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on Sports History Network. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen. I'm the founder and lead instructor at the Football Learning Academy, an online school teaching pro football history. Today's special guest is Mark Trustman. He's had a long coaching career, starting with winning a national championship as an assistant coach with the University of Miami. After multiple stops as various position coaches and coordinators, Trustman earned his first head coaching job with the Montreal Alouettes of the Canadian Football League. While there, he won two Grey Cups. After a stint as head coach of the Chicago Bears and as offensive coordinator of the Baltimore Ravens, he became head coach of the Toronto Argonauts, winning another Grey Cup. He finished as head coach and general manager of the Tampa Bay Vipers of the XFL. He is currently an adjunct professor at the University of Miami's School of Law. For our Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we focus on head coaches who have won three or more major professional football championships. Now let's get to our interview with Mark Trestman. I'd like to welcome Mark Trestman to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing great, Ken, and it's a pleasure, privilege, and and an honor to be with you today. Uh, I appreciate your time. So you're currently teaching at the University of Miami School of Law. What classes are you teaching there? Well, I'm teaching a uh, course uh, on on what I think is the number one blind spot in education today at any level, and that's, uh, you know, the subject of leadership, uh, especially in this next generation of leaders that are coming up. Uh, we've got a world that is completely interconnected, hyperconnected, and uh, you know what each of us do matters because we can influence now uh, through social media, uh, through our voices. Uh, so everybody has a chance to inspire and influence others, and essentially that's leadership. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the corporate environment today, you know, that I'm working in, and you know, you do see a lack of leadership, and so we definitely do need people like you teaching the next generation on leadership and how they can properly lead going forward. So I'm, I'm glad you're teaching those classes. Now you received your, uh, your JD from the university of Miami. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. So you're returning to your alma mater and you were admitted to the bar, uh, in Florida in 1983. Is that correct? Yeah. 82, 83. I don't remember. It's been such a long time. Um, <laughs> I still pay my dues, but I haven't practiced a day of law. Okay. Um, you were coaching at that time, correct? At the University of Miami? I was, uh, uh, through a coincidence, running into one of the assistant coaches while I was studying for exams. Um, a week later, I wound up interviewing uh, for a volunteer position with with Coach Schnellenberger. I was simultaneously clerking for a, a law firm. And Coach Schnellenberger offered me the opportunity to come on and uh and be a volunteer and help out. And it allowed me to eat on training table and, uh, and get started in a football career. I had no, no idea that I'd ever be, be part of. I mean, did you, were you thinking that you'd be giving up coaching and becoming a practicing attorney or what were your thoughts on that at the time? Well, I really didn't know. I was really just a law student drifting in the wind, you know, clerking for a firm to make a little extra money and, wound up, you know, getting involved in a University of Miami program that was surging upwards. And uh, with some rule changes by the NCA, there was a full-time coaching position open just as I was going to take the bar. 
Uh, and Coach Schellenberger offered me a full-time job coaching the quarterbacks. And I took the bar, and six months later, we won the national championship. So it was uh, unexpected, unintended. Um, I anticipated working for a personal injury uh, litigation firm uh, in downtown Miami, and and that fork in the road came, and I decided that I was going to try this coaching gig. <laughs> now, how did the skills that uh, you learned in law school help you with your coaching career? Well, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, the although I probably couldn't defend anybody from anyone, um, I, I did learn the value of hard work, which I really learned from my dad. Um, attention to detail, time management, organizing your thoughts, the ability to communicate, and uh, the importance of relationships. Uh, uh, you know, as you as you move forward, and uh, um, all of those things and more. Uh, you know, really helped me. I was never really academic as an undergrad. I was just a jock, you know, playing sports. And I went to class, did all the right things, but really never, you know, thought of academics as a, a strength of mine. And uh, it was overcoming a lot, of, particularly the first first year of law school, being involved with students that were much more academically engaged. And but I worked really hard. I worked from morning till night. I grinded through it. And uh, that's what coaching is. It's a grind. You know, it's a 24-7 grind during the course of the season. You know, as people have found out, you know, through all the um, media outlets and so forth, people really know what coaches go through now. And it's not like you don't just show up on Sundays for the games. You know, it's a lot of hard work, a lot of time committed to the job. Yeah, and I think people don't really understand that regardless of your background, there are skills that transfer to whatever you may want to do. So you could do a complete career change. But yet there's transferable skills. And, you know, I'm I'm glad that you know you were talking about that, that you are able to transfer a lot of that skill set from law school, from whatever you're doing into coaching, and then take coaching into teaching. And you know, it all works together. That, that's exactly right. I mean, coaching is synonymous with teaching. That's all it is. And you know, coaching is really taking a comp, you know, I looked at football as a complex science. You know, coach's job is to take complexity and make it simple so players can play under the chaos. And I don't think that's any different in any business. You know, I think what I've seen is, you know, somebody goes to work, whatever company it is, and uh, they have a manager, so to speak, that leads them, so to speak. And once they become really competent in, at uh, their work, then they are elevated to management. But they have no concept that management and leading is two different things. You have to be competent to lead. But competency doesn't make the leader, you know, vulnerability makes the leader, empathy makes the leader, compassion makes the leader, uh, active listening skills make, you know, make the leader, humility makes the leader, being respectful makes the leader and so on and so on. You know, those are the characteristics that really, you know, engage people and younger people, this new generation of, you know, feeling cared for and heard, listened to and valued. Yeah, I mean, you make an important point there that there is a difference between a manager and a leader. Managers just task oriented, just get stuff done. A leader inspires people to want to get things done, to want to follow that leader, to buy into exactly what you're trying to do. And when you buy in, you're going to be far more successful. People are going to be far more productive. So I think that's an important point that you bring up. Yeah, you make a really good point. I mean, most managers are transactional. You know, from a code, the, the, the meaning all that matters is the task and the scoreboard. Now you can lead transactionally. You know, I found you can lead transactionally if you're authentic and that's who you really are. 
and you're open and honest with those that you lead. But I don't think that builds personal satisfaction. And it's much more engaging to lead transformationally, where, as I said before, those that you lead are inspired and influenced uh, by your words, but most importantly, by your actions. But you have to be competent in football. Players have to know that you can help them master their craft. You know, if you can't help them do that, they may like you as a person, um, but they don't want you to lead them because you can't help them get better. If you can help them get better, you can lead them. And that's the importance of attention to detail and communication and understanding the dynamic and complexity of the game. But the fun part, as I said, is is leading transformationally where you're you're creating really authentic relationships and building something uh, besides winning on the scoreboard. Because in football, you get about seven minutes a week to play the game when you consider just active running time. It's process, the day-to-day working with somebody, helping them get better. That brings the joy um, and the gratitude and the and the uh, the selflessness that's such a great part of the game. What's your why? Why coaching? Why teaching? Yeah, I think my why is, and this is something that takes time. You know, we work hard in, in the law school on understanding your leadership narrative, you know, which is, you know, your life story, basically those moments and coaches and teachers and coincidences that allowed you to find your why. And I was very transactional till I was 50 and I really didn't know what my why was and because I didn't know I wasn't fulfilled. Uh, so I went back into my narrative and really spent some time. And my why became is really on a day-to-day moment-by-moment basis is to help who's ever in my airspace to become a better version of themselves. And when I work with teams and in my class, I don't really teach my class as a class. I teach it as a locker room to allow our class to become the best version of that class. And that's done through process. The the individual relationships and building authentic relationships between everybody and really treating it as a horizontal hierarchy where we're not playing roles. We're just a bunch of individuals trying to get better. So better version of themselves, better version of the group. And knowing that when I turn the lights off, you know, I've touched somebody and uh, influenced or inspired them uh, to be better than they were the day before. Yeah. I mean, that's something that's, to me, very satisfying about teaching is, like you said, you know, being able to influence people, being able to touch people, and just in some way being able to leave some sort of positive impact with the people that you're teaching. So I think exactly. that's great. Exactly. All right. Let's talk a little bit about some of the synergies that we can see in the corporate business environment and in the football environment. So let's talk a little bit about the interview process. When you're interviewing for a head coaching position, um, you want to make sure that not only is the position right for you, but is the company, or in this case, the team, the right fit for you. So when you go in and interview for a head coaching position, what are you looking for from the front office and ownership to make sure that it's a good fit for you? Yeah, well, um, I I believe that culture is... um, overused and not really understood to me in football. And I think this probably could translate anywhere into business is culture is, are the core values of the head coach. That to me, what it is, the, the, the team will 
in most cases, in football, it's it's two things. It's the cult, it's the values of the head coach and the ability of the quarterback to play at a highly efficient level and not turn the ball over. So, but just getting back to the interview process, you know, the culture to me are the values. So I think it's really important to express your values and there has to be an alignment. Um, the jobs I've taken where there was an alignment, it, it just makes it very difficult. And that alignment really is ownership, head coach, and in football general manager. Because there's going to be chaos and there's going to be adversity. And when there's noise, chaos, and adversity, things are going to go off the rails. And the only thing to keep it on the rails are the values of the leader. So that to me is critically important is to express your values and you will know you will have a sense of whether there's alignment and it creates your own authenticity of who you are because you want them to want you for who you are and and i, I think that's that that i think is the starting point know your values know your purpose and know that and and know that you have to relentlessly uh be aware and of course self-awareness is a critical, critical attribute and oftentimes a blind spot of leaders um, that you're staying on the rails. And the, and what does that is are your values because they're your non-negotiables. They last a lifetime. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that, that the authenticity part is something that some people overlook. You know, they're going for a position. And so they say, oh, well, I think that this is what they're looking for. So let me be that person. But yeah. I think this is what they're looking for. I'm going to be that person. Well, eventually you're not going to know who you are anymore. And people are going to be able to see right through that. And so why are they going to follow you if you're not being your true self? That's right. And the only way to find yourself is to know your leadership story. So you can, you know, be firm with that. And you don't want to be an imposter going in. Um, the jobs I've gotten, I've seldom talked about football you know, uh, I'm, I've seldom talked about myself and what I've accomplished. I've always stayed away from that. You know, I just try to make it as much as a conversation. Um, and and again, the focus would be, you know, it's, it's the start of a relationship. You have to be authentic. You can't lead without authentic relationships. And that starts with ownership and the general manager in a football sense. And I found that to be, you know, there's jobs I haven't gotten. And I really knew when I left why I did. There wasn't a lot, an alignment of the jobs that I've gotten. I pretty much knew I was going to get that job almost immediately within maybe the first 10 or 15 minutes, regardless of how many others were interviewing for the job. Yeah, and I think that's also a good point. The fact that not every job was going to be a good fit when you apply for a specific position you may think that this is going to be great. This is going to be perfect. But then once you get into the interview, you realize, yeah, maybe this probably isn't a good fit and that's okay. You need to be able to say that that's okay, that this isn't a good fit. So not only is that a positive for the company, it's a positive for you to identify that, that it's not going to be a good fit and they both can move on and, and find that right fit. I, I think this is probably tangential to the question, but, you know, one thing I would like to share, because I've had a lot of different jobs, a lot of different places, is that is is to always make the decision based on family first and not on title or money or expectations of what you can accomplish. Um, I was fortunate to have a wife who was willing to pick up and do all the dirty work while I just left and took a job with a bunch of guys like we were in a frat house, basically, you know, which is what football is. You're in 
you know, you're, you're there 24 seven and you get started right away and you jump into it. But uh, when I took jobs that I didn't put my family first, they weren't the best jobs. And um, the advice I always give young people is, is you got to take a deep breath. And if you have a family, you have to ask yourself, am I doing the right thing for them first? And, um, and then, then you can get into title and job description and, you know, what it looks like to you, but, but, but really the family should come first. You had mentioned this previously, and I want to dive a little bit deeper into it. You were saying that humility and vulnerability are strengths when it comes to leadership, not weaknesses. Can you dive a little more into that? Yeah. Um, well, you know, there, as I said, there's two, two, in my opinion, there's two kinds of trust. There's competency-based trust, which gets you in the door, basically. And then there's vulnerability-based trust. And really, when you think about trust itself, you know, trust is the most important cog in any relationship. If you don't have trust, you don't have relationships. If you don't have relationships, you're going to have implosion. So it's really the base fundamental of any leadership dynamic is having vulnerability-based trust. I made a mistake. Gentlemen, I made a mistake. I could do, I can do a better job. Um, you know, I've got to do a better job of listening to my staff. Um, um, when you, and because vulnerability based trust starts with the leader, when the leader's vulnerable, everybody's going to feel safe. You know, there's going to be psychological safety in the building, in the locker room. You know, people are going to be more willing to take risk. People are going to be more willing to innovate because they're not worried about reprisals. Right. So if the, the leader is vulnerable, you know, that gives license to those people that he leads to be vulnerable as well. And my feeling on trust is, and I would start every first team meeting with this, is that I would tell the team that I trusted them and I would expect to have to earn their trust each and every day. So you begin the virtuous cycle of trust by extending it first. And, you know, there's data. I've worked with some people um, that, have, that have said that the data says that when you extend trust to those that you lead early, they're more inclined to be trustworthy. You know, and trust is, you know, works from inside out. You know, trust is really first, can you trust yourself? You know, do you trust your reputation? Do you trust your word? Um, it's It starts there. So um, I don't see how, you know, if a leader isn't vulnerable um, and, and, and puts himself in a position where he can look at those he, lead, he leads eye to eye instead of from, you know, up to down. Um, I think it's very, very, very hard to bring people together in that way. Just yeah. doesn't work in today's, in today's world. Yeah. I mean, you make a great point that the foundation of any relationship is trust. And that's, you know, whether it's personal, whether it's professional, you know, you look at your um, career as a, a coach Players need to trust you. You need to be able to trust your players. You know, as a professor, you need to be able to trust your students. They need to be able to trust you. So it applies across the board, regardless of what you're doing. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I mean, it's really the glue that holds everything together, right? All your relationships. I mean, whatever relationships you get, you know, you don't have to go very far. Whatever relationships you have with your children, with your spouse, with your closest friends, if they can't trust you, um, how can you work together? Mm -hmm. You know, when you break trust, it's very hard to rebuild, 
right? And and that's the hard part, you know, in in the in the locker rooms, you know, in 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 the world I lived in with so many alpha males, you know, it's it's not an easy environment to work in. But I have found that if you can look them in the eye and say, "I'm sorry, I screwed up," I'm gonna I'm gonna do better than next time. Um, I think that goes a long way to, you know, bringing people together. As long as it's as long as it's authentic, and 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 not something you just utilize as a as a, a way of you know enhancing yourself over them. Yeah, I mean, you have people that are more political, where they they say stuff like that just to try to you know advance themselves or whatever, instead of being authentic. So it gets back to what you've been saying all along: authenticity is really what is one of the most important qualities that you can have as a leader along with the humility and vulnerability and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I found that if you're authentic, um, you can lead transactionally and still bring them together, you know, because a lot of them were raised transactionally, you know, a lot of players are raised transactionally. Um, but it doesn't lead to satisfaction and fulfillment, personal fulfillment. When you do that, that after, you know, a lifetime of coaching uh, and doing it both ways, transactionally and transformationally. You know, I never found fulfillment until I, I, I began coaching in a transformational manner. Now, let's go a little tangentially to that where, OK, you've got a, somebody who's in a leadership position or somebody who's in a management position. They're obviously, you know, have some authority based on their position. But how can people lead? regardless of their title, regardless of their position, you know, if they're not in a supervisory position, management position, how are they still able to lead? I don't think it's, I, I think that eventually um, their leadership style is going to wear off, you know, and it all depends where the alignment is in the organization. If the, if the organization is aligned in a transactional fashion, you know, he may be able to survive, but you know, the data, again, is clear that if if people, young people today are working in an environment where they don't feel listened to, cared for, appreciated, they're going to leave. They're going to move on. And, you know, I've got young daughters who have are in working environments and 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 they would rather stay at the pay that they're making uh, because they feel appreciated and and a part of the work you know part of the the locker room you know a, a part of the locker room that's heard and and uh and uh respected one thing that you've said on your podcast is that leaders are learners so how why is it that important for leaders to never stop learning and how did you apply that to your career not only as a coach but as a teacher yeah i think some of that is inherent you know i don't think leaders are born i think they're developed you know, I think there's, you know, just like quarterbacks aren't born, they're developed. And whether they're 8, 18, 28, or 38, every day in practice, they practice the same fundamentals regardless of age. You know, I think leadership is very similar. There's, they're, they're, they're not born, they're developed, you know. So um, I'm not sure I can, you know, answer your question, or maybe you could repeat it and give me another angle of it. But I just think there's, there's certain fundamentals that have to be um, practiced and worked on. Um, but as a, as a, uh, but I do feel like I've just always had an inherent, you know, desire to learn, to read, to find out how other people do things. Um, I've read thousands 
I would just say thousands, but hundreds of leadership books. Um, everybody really says the same thing in a different way. Um, um, and that's kind of what I've done with my class. I've taken all that and I've tried to take it uh, what I what can be a very complex way of teaching leadership, whether it's Wharton Business School or Harvard, and made it really leadership for dummies, you know, to extent that, you know, I want to be able to teach, you know, a junior high has to learn these same fundamentals as a third year law student LLMs, which are the students that I teach now. So um, I just have a constant desire to find out different ways of saying the same thing, um, learning how other people do things. I like to read. Um, and I just think that the, the leaders I've been around, you know, all read, you know, they all, you know, get listen to podcasts now, um, you know, go on YouTube and pick subject matter and try to get sound bites. Um, um, they want to grow. And I think that's part of it. They don't want to stay stagnant. Yeah. And I think the quickest way you can atrophy mentally is just to say, okay, I already know everything. I don't yeah, it's a, you know, it is, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor, but I say the brain is a muscle, you know, just like the rest of your body, you got to work on it every day, or as you said, it's going to atrophy and, and you, you get lazy. So, and there's always something, you know, that's exciting about if it, like, because I'm passionate and my purpose is to grow leaders and to inspire leaders. Um, I get excited when I find a soundbite in a book, or I hear somebody say something, or, you know, I read, you know, in the paper or something, I go, God, that's a heck of a way, a great way of saying um, the same thing. But the, what I found is, is that I enjoy listening to leaders that are really leading and standing in the shoes of leaders, as opposed to people that have become experts on leadership, but have never stood in front of a room and had the stress of leading 150 people every single day. And, and I, th I think that's different. I, I think that it's difficult for them to have that kind of sensitivity to how difficult it is, how much fun it is, how energizing it is. So you can take bits and pieces what they say, but they've never been in that room. You know, they've never, you know, had to, you know, had their, you know, people discuss who they are, you know, on Monday morning and, and carry that discussion all the way through the week to the next game. And your kids getting the feedback in school, you know, and their social media, you know, all that goes into it. So, um, but I don't think I'll ever stop trying to learn and get better. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of bring it up a little bit too, which is another great point. And that's, you know, leaders to me are really made when the stuff hits the fan. I mean, it's easy to lead when everything is going great. Now try to lead when things are not going great. You need to be able to bolster everybody up to make sure that, okay, this is what we need to do. This is where we need to go. This is how we solve this issue. But if you've never experienced it, like you said, how do you really know how to be able to lead in those types of situations? That's a great question. So, you know, when I was doing my narrative, I built a, a mission statement, just a short statement to kind of carry me through the day. And it was, I, I will always embrace the inevitability of adversity because there's always going to be adversity during whatever your, your, the season of your work life, uh, stay humble in success, which means that it's not about me. There's so many other people that have lifted me up and allowed us to have the success. And then the last part was really to go to my 
my purpose, which was to have ongoing passion to selflessly serve, never asking or expecting anything in return. So on the first point, you know, embracing adversity is what you're you're really talking about. And when it gets noisy and to avoid the cracks in the building, it just comes back to your core values. Like when there's noise, you know, what do you hang your head on? You know, for me, it was whatever it might have been. It was trust, respect, humility, joy and love like that. Nothing was going to take me off the rails. I was always going to come back to that, always come back to purpose. And that's where self-awareness comes in, that you don't get caught in the weeds or you don't get caught in the chaos, that you can you can stay even keeled. And I think an important quality about a leader is consistency. You know, you can stay consistent um, when everybody else is losing their minds. I mean, that's a leader's job is 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 to not lose their minds to where they make themselves right and the people that they lead wrong. I see that all the time, you know, on sidelines of the game, you know, a player comes to the sideline, the coach is screaming and yelling at him. Well, that, that's not about the player. That's about the coach losing his mind. That's not who that coach is, number one. Um, but number two is what the coach doesn't realize, he's just making himself right and the player wrong, right? The player is meeting the enemy when he comes to the sideline. That's not leadership, right? Um, uh, so that goes to just another aspect of leadership is to be responsive and not reactive and to go to your core values to keep you on your on the rails yeah i mean you know another good point that you know the team's going to follow the leader so if they're on an emotional roller coaster so is the team well how's the team going to be productive if they're constantly you know up and down up and down up and down when things aren't going well so yeah i mean to me a leader does need to stay calm in adversity and be able to make sure that they can instill that calmness in the team, because if they're calm, they can focus on what needs to be done to handle whatever situation you're going through. Yeah. Everybody's watching the leader. And what I've tried to tell the young people is because everybody's watching the leader, everybody's watching you because everybody can lead regardless of their role. And that's just a big part of, you know, our class that understanding that even if you're, you go in as a, the last associate on the rung at a law firm, you know, there's a lot of ways to lead, pick up a piece of paper off the ground and throw it in the garbage, spend a few minutes with the, um, the receptionist and ask her or him, you know, how's their day going? Do they have children? You know, what do they like to do? Make them feel appreciated. You know, that because every, the, 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 the most important job to me as a head coach was every day when I walked into the team meeting room, I wanted everybody to know that they, they mattered, that they were all interconnected. And without one of them, we could fail on game day, that everybody's job mattered and then show them how. Um, and then lastly, be relentless in the effort. I mean, I think a leader has to be relentless. He's not going to get by in overnight, but if he's, if he's consistently relentless on the things that he talks about, preaches, acts on, um, you know, eventually a wave can be created in the room and it doesn't take everybody, you know, they're just building blocks and, and then you reach a certain level and all of a sudden through winning the quarterback playing efficiently in football, you know, a wave begins, you know, you see it in the NFL right now, you know, a little bit of a wave in Denver this weekend, a little bit of wave in, in, in Cleveland this weekend, you know, just, you know, teams finding a way to, you know, continue to move forward. 
one of the things that I know you talk about in your class and you want to have your students talk about the people and the moments in their lives that influence them and kind of turn them into the people that they are at that particular moment. So talk to me about some of the mentors and the moments in your life and how they influenced you to form your leadership style. Yeah, I'll just give you, uh, you know, and I think that's that's important. So your narrative isn't your resume. You know, it isn't it, it isn't, you know, um, you know, the, the, your resume, your, your narrative are stories that allowed you to be the person. So I'll just give you two examples. And those could be family um, coaches or even coincidences, which I think are a big part of it. So I'll just give you two is I grew up in my dad's restaurant. He managed a bar and restaurant. And I would, when I wasn't practicing, I would go there and bust tables and, you know, wash dishes, whatever my dad needed. And I just worked there and I was 12, 13 years old. And, and uh, the, the, uh, um, the help there, the servers really liked me. I, I worked hard there for my dad and they would tip me pretty good at the end of the day, but I never really paid it. When I went back, I really never paid attention to what my dad was doing. And my dad was not educated. He was a professional musician, very young, was an orphan. His brother raised him, but I never really paid attention. But then I started thinking back and, um, and, and my dad, the, the restaurant business was kind of like the coaching business. You know, he worked a lot of long hours. So it was fun to be there with him and see him. But I never really noticed how, how much the people that worked for him loved him and how much he enjoyed being on the job, you know, um, helping, helping, uh, you know, the bartenders, giving uh, the waitresses a little money if they needed a little cash. There was no credit cards then or anything like that. But he had this uh, this uh, janitor. Uh, his name was um, Henry. And Henry had worked there. My dad had been there a long time, over 30 years. Henry had been the janitor there for 30 years, come in at 12 o'clock and clean the place. And at eight o'clock, he would leave, right? So uh, Henry was in his 60s and had a heart attack and passed. So my dad and I, um, uh, went over to the, their house first, the family's house. And I, I remember how everybody knew my dad and hugged him and my dad knew all their names. And, uh, and I, I, I never thought about that at the time. And then we went over to the funeral home and I, we walked up to the open casket and, and there was Henry in a blue suit. And I looked at my dad and I go, dad, that's your blue suit. And my dad started to tear up and, when I thought about that story, it's like my dad loved his job. He was a great leader. The people that worked for him loved him and respected him, and he respected them and cared about them. And I didn't realize that's what leadership was and what a great leader my dad was in his little space, in his bar, uneducated, really, high school, you know, but yet. People rallied around him and the people that worked there were there a long time, 20 or 30 years. So that's just a story. So when I look back, you know, I was coaching very transactionally. And then I, when I went back by narrative, that changed everything for me. I was going to, I knew I loved football, but I didn't care as much about the people that I worked with. I just cared about title, job description, and peer group adulation. That's one story. The other story would be coincidences. So, um, I'm coaching in Cleveland back in 1989. I'm the coordinator there. And one of our coaches, uh, son was, uh, an assistant at Michigan state. His name was, the coach was Joe pop. His son was Jim pop. And he asked me if Jim could shadow me while I was working. And I said, sure. I gave the, Jim a playbook. 
He shadowed me for a week. 20 years later, I forgot all about it. All of a sudden, 20 years later, I hadn't been a head coach. I had been a coordinator, coaching the Super Bowl, coaching MVP, but never had been a head coach and didn't know why. The reason why was I was very transactional. I wasn't really a leader. So this is after I had been fired and I was out of work and I had done my narrative. And Jim calls me, go, this is Jim Pop. You probably don't remember me, but I'm the general manager of the Montreal Owets, the CFL. And would you like to, you know, we, we've got a, a head job. I've watched your whole career and I remember how kind you were to me. And I've watched your coaching career and I think you need to be a head coach and this would be the place to do it. And I went up there. I was 12 or 13 of the, uh, the coaches that were interviewed. I went up there and in five minutes with the owner, um, I knew I got the job. And that changed everything because I got an opportunity to be a head coach. And I was had five great years there, transformationally coaching, coaching with my heart, inspiring guys, working every day, thinking about process. So just a couple of stories there. You know, my father, a coincidence, and there's many more. Um, but those are stories which allow you to create your narrative. And your narrative is so important because if you don't know your narrative, you can't be authentic. You can't create authentic relationships. You can't have a define your purpose and you don't know what your core values are. You have to go back and work through that. And that's what I did. And with that change, you won two Grey Cups with Montreal, correct? Yeah, we won two Grey Cups, won another one in Toronto. And, and you know what? Had some bad years, got fired. But yet I never had a bad day because I would the, my days were spent trying to teach young men and women how to how to just be better people, you know, be better fathers, husbands, teammates, whatever it might be, sisters, brothers, and uh, went home and turned the lights off and said, you won the day. And when I didn't win the day, it was because I was reactive or I was my ego got in the way and I apologized to myself and got better for it. Yeah, it reminds me of a quote by the the late Pat Croce, where he said, I never had a bad day in my life. It was just varying degrees of good. So just yeah, uh, your right. perspective on life. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. And it goes a long way to living a healthier life. Mm -hmm. You've brought up in your podcast about the mentor-mentee relationships and that you have a board of directors. Can you briefly talk about that? Yeah. Um you know, one of the big things that happened to me, I mean, I, my life turned around at 50 when I, when we got fired in, in North Carolina state. And, um, I was, did a lot of work and was, did some networking in Raleigh where I lived. And I, um, I was turned over to a gentleman named Gary Stevenson, who's now got a, lo a long history in the sports business now is with the MLS. And he really was my first mentor. And, uh, I, I had had a four-year contract with NC State, and I was two years into it when we got fired. And he, he was a contemporary Duke grad, lawyer, and I was with him for 10 minutes. He says, do you realize you have two years and you're going to get paid to find out what you want to do for the rest of your life? And it was the start of a mentorship relationship. But what I've learned over time is I didn't do a very good job with that mentor-mentee relationship because... I was selfish about it. I took his advice and never really, and then went about with, on with my life. And what I've realized and what I try to teach our, our students is, is that the mentor-mentee relationship is really a bilateral relationship that a mentor can learn as much from you as you can from the mentor. And it's an obligation uh, of the mentee 
not to waste the mentor's time, but to engage him and build a relationship that is mutually beneficial. And um, as we got into our class, one of our uh, one of our panelists uh, uh, talked about having a board of directors as your mentors, you know, and that board could be fluid, but a board that you could go, you could go to different people for advice. But I think the important about, about point of mentor mentor relationship is it can be mutually beneficial. You, the mentee has as much to give as the mentor and it should be an ongoing relationship. Yeah. I think that's definitely great that it, any relationship, regardless whether it's mentor mentee or anything, it should never be a take. It should always be a, a give. And you should be going into any networking type of thing saying, what can I give to my network? Not what can I take from my network? And that philosophy to me should apply across any relationship that you have. A hundred percent. I mean, Adam, Adam Grant, you know, from uh, Wharton Business School wrote the book, I think it was called Givers and Takers. And anytime you, you engage somebody, you know, that your, your antenna should be up. You know, if, if they're, if they're givers, great, you know, givers, you know, kind of goes to the last part of my mission statement is you want to give, serve without asking or expecting anything return. It's like the hundred zero principle. Don't worry about what you're going to get back. Just give everything you can. And, but your antenna has to be up on the takers um, and defining whether you have the ability to transform them into something better than that. Mm. I sometimes go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I said sometimes that just takes time. It's mm -hmm. you know, I would always tell the team, some of you get it, some of you don't, but eventually you will. <laughs> and uh, you know, that that's something I reminded. So when I saw the eye rollers, and when you stand in front of a hundred people, you know who the eye rollers are, you know. And um, one of the things that uh Lucioni says in one of his books, you know, a leader has to be relentless. You have to believe in what you believe in, and you have to be relentless. It's the, the relationships that allow you to message and uh, people differently. Like I would send the same message. We're all interconnected every day, but I would do it different ways because people hear differently. And the better you know somebody, the more you can create the messages to reach them. And that's the challenge of leadership. A couple more things here. Um, talk to me about your podcast, a leadership game plan. What do you talk about and what are you looking to accomplish with that podcast? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, what 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 I try to do is 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 to do what you're doing here is to get, you know, some insights from people who have been in position of leadership and find out what's important to them and how they go about it. I mean, you know, in our in our first um, podcast, Thomas Friedman was on from The New York Times. And one of the thing that resonated was he always said, if I would have spent as much time listening as I have talking, I would be better today, you know, and, you know, he was vulnerable in saying he didn't listen enough, you know, he spent too much time talking. Um, and so every, every uh, person we've had on, and we've had, you know, some really good speakers, uh, you know, Brandon Marshall was on, you know, former Chicago bear that I coach and he's become an entrepreneur and a, you know, a lot of different ventures. And he, he, he told, he explained, you know, in his mind, what purpose was there's platform, which is you're a coach, your coach is I'm a coach. That's my platform, but platform and purpose are two different things. Platform is what you do. Purpose is your, is your why, 
right? So Brandon's platform was being a great football player, but his his why, his purpose was to bridge the gap in the mental health community. So, I mean, that was a, that was a really, really good nugget. You know, um, Russell Wilson was, you have to believe, right? Last night he believed and, you know, they scored a touchdown in the last minute to win a game. And he's done hundreds of those probably in his career, you know, of last, last minute wins. So each, you know, each person has a little bit different spin on leadership, but when it comes down to it, it's about relationships. It's about finding your purpose. It's about developing core values. It's about having a mission. You know, I like to talk about blind spots a lot because as a coach, you get, you have blind spots, you get caught in the weeds. And, you know, when you get caught in the task and you forget about the people, you're going to lose. You know, I made, I've made mistakes where, you know, I got a script, I, I closed the door instead of keeping the door open and walking down the hall and asking the linebacker coach how the the, the recital of his daughter went last night. You know, th those are maybe more important. You get caught in the weeds. So, you know, so self-awareness and ego and consistency are all blind spots, you know, of, of leaders. And uh, we learn about that as well. So uh, it's really fun to do just like, you know, having these conversations, hopefully there'll be a, a nugget somewhere, you know, that somebody can use to be better tomorrow. Now, finally, talk to me. I know you're involved with sports management worldwide. How'd you get involved with them and what's your role with them? Well, I haven't done a lot recently. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, Lynn and, and, uh, and Liz um, have just became friends years ago and I was willing to help them when I was out years ago. I, I did some classes and basically did the same thing that I'm doing now. They were really the, the, you know, laid the groundwork for what I'm doing at the law school. I was on the advisory board there. They have a, a entertainment arts and sports track there at the law school. It's really fantastic. And I've been on the advisory board for about 10 years there uh, where we decided to build this class and it's growing, you know, we're doing it brick by brick. Um, and I'm excited about that, but, uh, um, you know, they've done a great job with sports management. They've they're worldwide now and, uh, they've grinded and, and, and put a company together. That's really fantastic. Well, Mark, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been great having you here. It's been great to be with you and, uh, we'll do it again sometime. And thanks for thinking of me and bringing me aboard today. Thank you. Have a good uh, Thanksgiving. You too. I hope that you enjoyed our interview with Mark Tressman, but we're not done. For the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we focus on coaches who have won three or more major professional football championships, which includes Mark Tressman. So let's start with the NFL and All-America Football Conference. Paul Brown won seven with the Cleveland Browns. George Hallis won six with the Chicago Bears slash Chicago Staley's. Bill Belichick won six with the New England Patriots. Curly Lambeau won six with the Green Bay Packers. Vince Lombardi won five with the Green Bay Packers. Chuck Knoll won four with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Guy Chamberlain won four, two with the Canton Bulldogs, and one each with the Cleveland Bulldogs and Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. Joe Gibbs won three with Washington. Weeb Eubank won three, two with the Baltimore Colts, and one with the New York Jets. And Bill Walsh won three with the San Francisco 49ers. Moving over to the Canadian Football League, we have Lou Heyman, Frank Clare, Hugh Campbell, Don Matthews, and Wally Buono, each winning five championships. Billy Hughes and Bud Grant won four. And we have Liz Marriott, Teddy Morris, Pop Ivy, Ralph Sazio, and our own Mark Trestman winning three. 
That's all that we have for this episode. Stay tuned to our social media channels to stay up to date on our episodes. You can find the links at the Football Learning Academy website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Not only will you find links to our social media channels and a listing of all podcast episodes, but you'll find other fascinating interviews and classes. And an important note, a portion of all proceeds generated at the Football Learning Academy go to help retired players in need. That website again is www.football-learning-academy.com. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast.